Welcome to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archive podcast. In this episode, Barry Cunningham and Mary Byrne share practical tips on writing for children, how to get published, how to market your book and more. Recorded in front of a live audience at Dublin City Library and Archive, Pier Street on the 23rd of February 2008. Now this event today is in association with the Verbal Arts Centre in Derry and it's to promote to highlight the uh, launch of a new website called hostwriters.com and the idea of hostwriters.com is for those of you who may not have the time or the inclination to go to a creative writing group but who may have work that you would like other people to give their opinion on you can register with hostwriters and other people who are registered and you can upload your work onto it other people will comment on it hostwriters is due to go live in March now, I know today was billed as a workshop. The response has been so extraordinary, as you can see, that it will be more of a um, tips and advice session. But Barry and Mary will talk, and there will be time for questions later. I'd like to introduce you to our speakers for today. We're very honoured to have both of them. And Mary Byrne uh, worked in Children's Publicity Department of Puffin for years, and she's now a PR consultant specialising in children's books. She plans campaigns for people such as Cornelia Funk, Cathy Hopkins, Darren Shan, Derek Landy and Kate Thompson. That's to name but a few. And she works very closely with Chicken House, HarperCollins and Piccadilly Press. Barry Cunningham probably needs no introduction to any of you. He was the marketing director for Puffin and he worked, while there he worked with many of the great names in children's publishing, including Roald Dahl, Mary Norton and Spike Milligan. He then set up the children's publishing wing of Bloomsbury and while he was there he obviously discovered J.K. Rowling. And eight years ago he decided to start his own publishing company. He wanted to move out of London and work from the country. He set up his own publishing company, The Chicken House, which has published bestsellers by Cornelius Funke, uh, Kevin Brooks, uh, bestselling Martin Pig, Stuart Hill's Cry of the Ice Mark and the current Sensation Tunnels, which, uh, rights for which have been sold into 25 countries. I would like in advance to thank Michelle Cunningham from the Verbal Arts Centre for putting this programme together and our two speakers for coming from uh, the UK for today. So enjoy the afternoon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, uh, it's, it's great to be here. It's my second visit to this beautiful building, um, this time brought to here by Hostwriters, which always sounds a bit like ghostwriters, but uh, um, always makes the publisher slightly shiver. But, uh, so what we're going to do today is um, we're going to talk for a little bit, but, but the idea of this session originally was it was really to talk about what you want me to talk about. And of course, there is a wide variety of things that we can deal with in terms of writing, publishing, promoting, being a children's writer, being a successful children's writer, being an unsuccessful children's writer. So there are a number of different routes we can go down. So um, we, will, we will try and pause at a reasonably early enough time for you to ask questions and for us to lead off on the roads that you wish to travel down. I'm just going to start, really, by saying just a little bit about me, not just because it's nice to hear my own voice, but also to some of the things that um, I've kind of cover might be relevant to the particular things I've done. Um, I started off 
uh, working for Puffin and for Penguin, uh, going around the country really with, uh, with authors and illustrators and writers. Actually, I spent quite a lot of time in, in a large penguin suit, um, like a, a puffin suit, really, with a beak and stuff like that. And uh, inauspicious start, you may, you may think, to a career in publishing, but actually really useful. Now, I don't know how many of you have dressed up as large furry animals, but, but I, I suspect a fair few. And, of course, the, the, the interesting thing is, is how trusting children are of you when you are in a large costume. So a lot of people, a lot of children used to take me round by the hand and ask me questions that they were too sh scared of asking the authors and talk to me about the books that they liked and um, about their friends and about their family and the things they were worried about and horrible miss, miss teacher tomorrow and you kind of, you got kind of close to the whole experience although I have to be very careful because I had a, a large beak. And if you, if you bent down to commiserate too much, you watch them round the head. So, which wasn't what I was asking for. So, um, or they were asking for. So, I kind of learned a lot about what particular children reacted to. And, and I learned an awful lot particularly about what I, I come to know as, as book huggers, really. Children who have a physical relationship with the books that they love. They, they put them under their pillows. They read them a lot of times. They're very, very close to that experience. Um, and, and they're very close to authors. Cornelia Funke is, is one of my authors now, went on to write about how children put books under pillows and, and they can hear them through their dreams. So this is a, a tad fanciful, but the principle is the same. Um, and, and they became very strongly attached to their authors. And, and they became strongly attached because that experience was, was very important to them. Because unlike the movies and TV, reading that book w with that author um, w was, a, a, was an intimate experience. It's what you did in your bedroom, behind the sofa, on the bus, in the library. In all the quiet places, your relationship with that author was very, very important. So I came to realise it wasn't just... It wasn't just and only um, the book itself, but it was what they thought of the author, um, the way that the author kept faith with them or didn't keep faith with them, the, the way that the author led them into the experience and took them out and into the next book. All those, if you like, quite difficult and subtle things were very, very important to children. And as I went on to work later in adult books, I never forgot that, really. And I never forgot that, that, that although Roald Dahl was... And, and indeed Spike Millican were extraordinarily difficult people with adults they never were with children they were always very very direct with them and um, as I kind of went on into publishing and decided what I wanted to do next it was, it was those qualities really that I wanted to farm really and to develop and whether I could help make that connection between the author and their work and Mary has worked with any number of authors, and that correction is, is kind of magical. And, yeah, I think that that is very true, that the most successful writers have a genuine connection with their fans. I mean, Darren Shan is a case in point. He tours twice a year, he runs his own website, and to be honest, he'd probably be on the blog every day, even if he wasn't being published, and it's really, really important to his fans. They feel they have this genuine connection. They know where he was yesterday. They know how long it took him to eat that pie. I mean, this actually was on his blog. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he shares an awful lot of his own personal life with them. Similarly, Jacqueline Wilson touring has, you know, she writes, handwrites uh, little cards to every single fan who um, 
to the cemetery or lesser, and they come to her signing queues where the queues now just go, oh, is this not on? Could you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so they come up in the signing queue with their little folders maybe of, of postcards that they've got handwritten in Jacqueline Wilson's tiny, tiny little handwriting. And then you find out that Jacqueline actually spent Christmas Day, you know, replying to her fan mail. And that um, relationship is very genuine, I think, amongst those children's writers. They have a, a real respect for their fans and a real, well, humility, I think is the word that Barry was using earlier, um, a humility, really, um, towards their readers. And I think that that's a wonderful um, spirit to bring to, to your writing. Um, so, yeah. but, so why is this important to you? Um, um, why is even that humility by someone exhibited by someone like J.K. Rowling, who in a sense is the biggest geek for Harry Potter that you'd ever meet, who <laughs> knows more about Harry Potter's intimate life than even the greatest fan and takes it as seriously? It's, it's because I think that one of the first two principles, I guess, I, I want to make about writing for children um, is, is that you are writing for a different audience. You're writing, um, and you have to have, as Mary said, that sense of humility. And I think you've got to connect in with age-appropriate experience in with that community. So the first thing you need to decide when you're writing for children is who are you writing for? What age group do you think you're writing for? And what do you think the parameters of that are? Now, I've got obviously very um, direct views on what those are. I think um, that all my best writers, and we talked about this a lot, all connect in, like Roald Dahl did, as the bullied little boy, um, as a lot of my authors do, that they connect in with something very, very important in their own childhood experience. So I think if you want to be an effective long-term writer for children, you have to be able to mm. go back in time to the period that you feel most strongly about. Now, whether it was happiness, it was anger, it was that fierce rage that children feel about injustice or cruelty, or whether it's that the most painful thing in childhood, which mm. is an adult letting you down, an adult not coming up with the right trust that you, you exhibited in, in them. So you have to find something which, which you still feel and which you believe is worth mm. saying. And then you can go back and build your stories and your, your world visions around those. And then you can clothe them in, in any kind of clothes. Where you come into your story is, is the interesting, is the craft of it. It can be in history and science fiction in real life. It can be any way you want to clothe that experience. But I believe the books that I choose and the books that have been most successful for me come from a valid, a valid experience that you want to try and translate to children. And Barry, um, we could use Kevin Brooks. Yeah. Is this microphone working? Yes. Um, you know, one of our great Chicken House authors and probably the first writer that, we, that Barry actually discovered for Chicken House, really, and made into a best-selling success is Kevin Brooks, who writes wonderful, wonderful thrillers, um, you know, for teenagers and has a wide adult readership as well. But his books are very much centred around the adolescent boy's experience and I think Kevin would be the first to say that in a way that's still where he is he still is that 14 year old very sensitive boy um, and, and you can see that through, through all his books and I think it's part of what makes him such, such a great writer and makes his, his fans really respect him and, um, and they, they just feel that, that connection 
I mean, I suppose it, it's kind of slightly obvious, isn't it, that you have to have a degree of childlikeness to make this work. Um, otherwise, you can write great books with children in them. I mean, The Go-Between is a great book with children in it, but it's not about childhood experience. It's about adult experience. Um, and that is a big difference. Um, even in this kind of world of crossover, which I kind of bore on about how how um, there are too many crossover books appealing to adults in the world now. But even in that world, which has changed dramatically the children's book market, I believe there is a strong distinction about books that happen to have children in them and children's, children's mm. books that are really for children. And to me, that's very central and very obvious. I'm sorry to make it again, but it's about age, suitable experience told through something which you believe is transforming. And of course it has a great story, and of course it has a great craft, and of course it has a good plot. All the sort of things that I can help with, which is what my job is. But if you haven't got the essence, I'm not bothered really, because I'm not doing it for any purpose. Um, and so I think that's, that, that's really, really important. Um, I think that's kind of the inspiration and, and where it's kind of going. Um, you'll want to know, I guess, a lot of things about where it currently is. And, and how you go about writing and getting published. Now, I think it all links together somewhat satisfactorily and seamlessly here, because I think the first thing you should do is start writing. You know, I mean, just, you know, get on with it. <laughs> it's a good, you know, and if you've been writing short stories or poetry or, you know, it's just like working it out, you know, getting it down on paper and then start reading it to people. Um, start reading it to your friends, make your family listen to it, make your children listen to it. Get the thing down. Start talking about it. Then you'll see the holes. Then you'll see the glaze of boredom in that middle section you were always worried about. You know, <laughs> you'll see what doesn't work. You'll start seeing it you know, in the best way possible before I have to publish it. You know? So you're, you're testing it out. You're having a look round. I used to be very... Um, Mary used to hear me being very... Uh, sniffy and snobby about writers groups and I said well you know what can they teach uh, it's all inspiration you're not good enough it won't work but actually He's you know change his mind I've recently. changed my mind a lot <laughs> recently because I think writers groups have changed I think reading course uh, write, children's courses for writers have changed I think things like this gathering have changed and I think that 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 um, Literary magazines? Yeah, magazines, yeah. magazines. Of course, I'm deeply influenced by the fact that we've just run our own. We've run a Chicken House Times um, children's competition, um, which is for fiction. And it's the first time we ran it. And we, we were very pleased because the Times came to us as the bastion of new talent. 2,000 um, entries? 2,000 entries. It started off really yeah. small. And then we couldn't get through the door, could we? But there's 2,000 full-length novels. Which they, how long do they have to write them in? Not long. They didn't have long, did Not they? Not long. So, and um, we have got five brilliant entries, you know, which is astonishing. It just goes to show how wonderfully eccentric and bizarre to people's mm. imagination are, because th this was extraordinary. So, enter into competitions. We've got a number of our authors who who started off just by winning small competitions, small magazine things, small mm. talent competitions, um, and. I think it's getting, getting that process going, which is really, really important. And the next thing you want to know, uh, how do I get anybody else to read it? 
do you want to say anything more about the writing? Because you, you go a lot around writing competitions. And things, don't you? Yeah, well, hopefully there will be another Chicken House one next year, so do keep your eye open for that one. And um, I think you had said a little bit earlier about actually making the submission. I mean, I don't, I don't know that there are an awful lot of writing competitions, but I think that this is an excellent one to do, isn't it? Mm. There was the WOW one that Emma Clayton was shortlisted for. Um, yeah, I don't and I think the, the, the next process, which, which, which is the, the vital one, I think, from everybody's view, is how do, how do I get a publisher to read it? How do, who, what is a publisher anyway? Um, is an agent a good thing? Um, you know, what do I do now? What do I do? I'm truly fantastically good, but um, I don't know anybody. Well, I think it is, this is the most difficult thing, clearly. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit boringly about how you should prepare your work first, because... I, we get a lot of it. We, we are one of the few publishers that still take unsolicited work. Unsolicited always sounds very rude to me, but it just means, it just means simply <laughs> those parcels that come in without a mother or father or anybody else that you know and they just come by themselves, you know. Um, and not everybody takes those. But anyway, let's just talk about the submission process. Um, when and we'll talk about how you find the people in a minute. But I think it's very, very important that any submission, and this is kind of, you might think this is depressing, <laughs> but we are going to talk about it, that um, the submission has to have a piece of writing about you. Now, you don't have to be an abseiling vicar, you know, to get published. Um, and um, you don't have to be a single mum writing in an Edinburgh cafe either. But you do have to be interested in telling me why you're interesting. And in this day and age, um, it's very important that we are convinced that not only do you have something to say about yourself, but that you're willing to say it to other people. Mm. And that can be adults, it can be teachers, it can be librarians, it can be gatherings like this, mm. it can be children themselves. But you're going to have to be able to talk about what you do. And as a publicist, my heart always sinks when I read, you know, the author's biography that they've sent into the publisher. And it says, you know, lives in Kent with three cats and an interesting collection of scarves. You know, because that's just not really, you know, enough to make a story. And, um, and we do need a story about the author as well as, a, as, well as the actual story you know, story that has been published. So, so that is important to bear in mind, I think, right from the beginning, really, right from the submission, to, to tell us a little bit about yourself. And this, this spins off further, really, as well, because why, I hear you say, why do I have to tell you all this stuff? Isn't the work going to do it? Well, actually, it, it, no, is, is the short answer, because we, we have to know that not only, um, and we have to do it in a fairly short way, there has to be a fairly short letter. It has to say good stuff about you and why you're interesting and why, you're, why you think you want me to read it and how you will talk about that book to other people. Um, but also, very importantly, children's books is a, is, a, um, is a business like any other and it has some criteria. Um, often, when you're writing your first book, it takes a long while. You try it out with lots of different people. You get it published. And then, frankly, all hell breaks loose because I want another one and you haven't really thought about it. And I need another one while you're touring to promote the first one. Um, I'll need another one while you want to go to Spain on a family holiday. I'll need another one while I want you to go to Spain to promote this book on a family holiday. And it all gets 
it all becomes very much a business. And the most common thing people yeah. say to Mar- me and Mary is, I didn't know it was going to happen no. like this. And I think that's completely true because if it's been your you know, life's dream to have a book published, it's perfectly understandable that the dream in a way has stopped in your head at that point where you have imagined walking into a bookshop and looking at the shelf and seeing your name on the book. And, uh, and it's a great moment. And, you know, also some booksellers do amuse themselves by spotting local authors doing this very thing. And, um, and in fact, Kevin Brooks got caught out by his local Waterstones. Having, he used to walk in and he'd just look. <laughs> and um, rearrange all their books. Yeah, yeah. Face out. Do it face out. We like that. And, um, and, and that's completely understandable but then things do change because even if the book doesn't take over the media which we would love to happen in every case if possible but you know there's lots of other things that are kind of invisible to the general public that happen you'll be asked to maybe go on tour and talk to large groups of children about your work you'll be asked introduced to librarians, reviewers, booksellers all over the country. Um, So you will be doing a lot of kind of meeting and greeting and meeting the influential people who are the ones who who help us, you know, keep those books moving. And so it is, and it does happen that I'm asking you to do those things and at the same time Barry wants, you know, the next draft worked on and maybe the Americans have bought the rights and, you know, it's very exciting but it can be really, really stressful and something that maybe people don't think about that moment beyond. If you want to be ready for a career, it is being ready for a career. Mm. Um, Otherwise, you'll be like Happy Mondays, you know. You'll just go up there and (laughs) go away again, you know. Um, But they were good while they were there. They were good while they were there, yeah. (laughs) But, But... but it is. It's a career. It's boring. It's hard. Sometimes it's hotel rooms. It's going around mm. the country. It's talking to people on a wet Wednesday in Wigan or Wicklow. Don't haven't even read your book. The class has been shipped in by that teacher that we didn't like originally, mm. and she's gone to have a coffee. And they're sitting there and they're looking at you, and they haven't read a single word. And you're there with them for half an hour. Yeah. You know, it's doing all that. It's hard. It's hard. You're interviewed by the media who haven't read your book either, who've read the three-minute synopsis and possibly think you're somebody else. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it, it, it's, a long, it's a long slog. And then there's the children themselves, which is the serious side of this. It's, you need to think about what happens before and after your story. You know, because mostly, in most of the areas we're talking about, children will want to know if the book is successful, what happens next, what happened before. You're going to need to work out everything about your world before you come to me, all right? And that's down to what they wear, what they like to eat, mm. you know, stuff that you may not want to put in your book. But the more you can work out about your world, the less of a shock all this is. Because those are the questions I'm going to be asking you. Those are the questions that children and, and teachers are going to be asking you. And maybe I'm going to ask you to write another book around that, that personality or that little girl that you've created. And if you say, well, I don't know what happens next, it's no good, really. <laughs> and I'm probably not going to sign you. <laughs> so, so, you know, all that stuff, there's a lot of, a lot of considering. There's, there's, there's how seriously you take this. Um, it's how committed you are and how much have you thought about what you've done already and the world that you've created. So all that's wrapped up in in kind of thinking about how you write that first letter, also a synopsis of what the book's about that has to come into me. Now, I've read synopses that are longer than the novels, right? So it's very important they just tell me roughly what's going to go on and why it's interesting, because I haven't read the novel yet, so I don't need to know character studies of all the characters. 
and it's very, very commonly done that they, people overdo these synopses. And then just the first three chapters. Um, or you can pick any three chapters. It doesn't have to be the first one, as long as you set the scene of what's happening in the three chapters that you've picked. Um, so that's, that's the submission in itself. And other very boring things, double-spaced, one-sided only, because most of these things go into readers, and if it's on a double side, they'll think that it's gone to page three without page two. So, it, you know, very, very simple things. Read, think about who's going to open that package to begin with and whether or not they're going to be interested in what's mm -hmm. inside it. And were you going to talk a little about agents? Yes. So <laughs> the enemy as far as Larry is concerned. Let's concerned. do the publishing thing first. Okay. So from the Writers and Artists Yearbook or from any directory, you can get names of publishers and you look on their websites. Now, an awful lot of them don't take these unsolicited manuscripts, so there's no point in sending them in. Um, some Chicken House does. I don't read everything, of course, but I have people who do read some of everything. Mm. Um, and there are a few other people who read yes. most of everything as well, but there aren't that many. So there's publishers themselves. Now, just very, very briefly, because I expect all of you know this, a publisher is, is a business. It takes on your rights if you come directly to them, takes on your rights to sell your book around the world. They will generally try and, and ask for the rights. They'll ask for as many rights as they can, but the principal ones will be to sell your book in what are called the English language speaking markets. Here, United Kingdom, America, Australia, New Zealand and Canada. And they will also try and get the foreign rights, which are the, are the rights to be able to sell your book in translation in other languages. Um, they will also seek to acquire the media rights from you, um, which will let them sell the film and television. Now, some of those you may not want to sell, some of those you may want to think about. Um, uh, generally speaking, all of your material must carry, of course, a copyright line. So you must be very careful. And just, you just have to assert copyright in this country. So you just have to put your name with a little, one of those little funny symbols with C around it but you must, 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 must put it on everything that you send to anybody, um, particularly film and television people who have a habit of borrowing mm -hmm. them. Um, so you must have that copyright line. And generally speaking, if a publisher signs a contract with you, it'll be for the length of copyright. Or, and they'll all have this generally speaking, if the book goes out of print, it's not available, then all those rights will come back to you. Um, so, so that's generally speaking, the process. Now, publisher, I mean, I'm a publisher and uh, it, it, it under, underlies my risk in taking on a brand new writer the more of those rights I can have. If I can only buy a selection of those rights and you're determinedly withholding Croatian translation rights, <laughs> then, you know, if, if it gets to be a habit, then it becomes less it becomes less attractive to me necessarily because obviously one of the reasons why Chicken House is so successful is that we publish around the world. So we publish under our own imprint in all those English countries and we sell very aggressively rights in other countries too. So um, in a sense, my, uh, for a brand new writer, my business model is not just selling it in the United Kingdom and Ireland, but it's selling it around the world. So I have a better chance of success. So um, it's, it's an important part of my risk. Um, other bigger publishers may just specialise in the United Kingdom and America. Mm. It'll all be various, but you should think about what you're selling. Now, agents. Um, 
so I can't get it read if I am you I cannot get it read by um, a publisher there are a few of them and I think I'll do better going to an agent now in lots of ways you are um, and there are a, a relatively few number of UK agents and, and an even smaller number of specialist children's agents and um, their job is to find the best people to make the most money out of now they don't put any money up they won't give you any money but they'll represent you so they'll represent you to publishers in this country and around the world and they'll take anything from 10% to 20% to 25% of your total lifetime income from that um, now that's sometimes a good thing and sometimes not but um, it, it absolutely is worth considering the advantages are that they know what they're doing, it's their business, they will accept you if they think you're commercial, they won't accept you if they don't. The very best ones will do a little bit of work with you. They'll say, yeah, I think this is really good, but you ought to improve this and this. Um, not so good ones perhaps won't do that. And then they will send it to publishers around the world, starting, starting in the United Kingdom. And they will represent that book on, on your behalf. And the good thing is I will always look at things from agents. So most publishers will always look at things from agents because they're their trusted companions, as it were. Um, sometimes, um, if agents aren't offering a particularly great deal or particularly good rights, that may be a disincentive to take a brand new writer. Um, maybe, maybe not. Again, that, that all depends, but you should take advice on that. Um, you should look carefully at the agent's websites and see who else they publish. Because again, in that first letter of submission, if you know that they represent some of your favourite authors, say that they're your favourite authors, possibly even mm. if they're not, that, so that they will pay attention <laughs> to, to what... And also, of course, it's sensible. If they publish people that you like and you admire, then that they would, generally speaking, be a good home for you. Sophie Hicks at the Ed Victor Agency, for instance, takes mm. a lot of Irish writers. Um, a rather a famous one. Um, Owen Colfer, yeah. And uh, we, sh we have just bought a book from her um, by, by a new writer. Mm. So, you know, it, work it works like that. Now, I think there are disadvantages, but you probably think these are so distant in terms of disadvantage that I won't even worry about them. <laughs> but um, much like the Happy Mondays, um, what happens m in some places now is that you will become the flavour of the month. Your agent will take you and decide that your novel of of vampire <laughs> awareness <laughs> is going to be the next big thing, okay? And they will hype you up and they will sell you for a lot of money. Now, great, that's fantastic. <laughs> I'm at a disadvantage. <laughs> I can't see the disadvantage in that, Barry. But the, the disadvantage is, is the same one of Happy Mondays, that, that often in, in lots of occasions now, and perhaps increasingly, that... If, if I buy uh, a book of yours for, for a lot of money, then I need it to sell a lot of copies in mm. order to earn back that advance that I paid you. Um, an advance is simply an advance against earnings. And um, if I don't make that back, it's not the only criteria. I may think you're wonderful anyway, but it's a big criteria. And a book which sets the scale very high with someone's first book, which doesn't quite make it, begins to be thought of as a failure whereas in any normal world a book selling half of that would be a success mm. so you've got to be aware that, the, that, that you can have a very short career if you're flavour of the month and they sell you for too much money that you will be perceived as a failure very very quickly and this has happened 
quite a lot recently. Mm. So it's, it's, you know, you have to enter into partnership with your agent and say, no, I don't want to be sold like that. I want to be sold like this. I want to choose the relationship I have. I want to choose the editor that I have at the publishing company that I've met rather than just be sold to the highest bidder. Mm. So, you know, don't be afraid, even in those things, oh my goodness, someone wants to buy a book. Don't be afraid to take some control. Try and meet the editor who's going to work with your book and see whether you like him or her. Because it might be me, and I'm, you know, very strict, and you might not like being edited by me. Um, and, and it's important, because it's like a first relationship. But the, the first editor that you have helps you structure your work in the way that you want it to go. And if that doesn't work, then that can ruin the whole deal, really. So, so it's very, very important for you to know who they're selling you to, and if possible, who will do you in America mm. as well. So, so it, it's a very, very people business. It's very, very small, and the environment that you're published in is very, very important. Mm. And, and Mary's got big experience of big and little. Yeah. Um, and I think as well it's encouraging you all the time although you feel as if you're approaching impersonal you know, multinational companies or even impersonal small companies if you haven't met any, anyone like Barry before or an agent it's encouraging you to make that approach as personal as you can and take, take as much control of that as you can you know, so that your letter will stand out because we're all susceptible to a personal approach aren't we um, and, and I think there are a number of Irish writers being published very successfully in the UK now, not just Owen Colfer, but um, Siobhan Parkinson, Kate Thompson, Oshin McGann, um, and Sophie represents a number of them. But an agent isn't the only way to go, as Barry has said, and you need to just work out what, what is the best for you. And I think it's, it's true what he says as well about overhyping a big new book and promising that this is going to be the next big thing isn't always doing the author of that novel, especially if it's a, a first novel, um, a great service to their career in the long run. So just to be aware that if you are in it as a career and it's what you really want to do, um, don't be afraid to start more modestly, really, because that may be um, the best way forward. So, so we can answer lots of different questions about agents. So that could be that could be a way that you'd like us to go this afternoon. The other ways, you know, the getting it read ways are are, are more ordinary in a sense. Um, it, it's to find people who work for publishing companies or who can talk to publishing companies, and they can be your librarian, they can be your bookseller, um, they can uh, they can be anybody who has a business relationship with publishing companies, uh, who can say, I've read this great book, will you read it for me? And, and that's the way in. A lot of people get in by who, who they manage to, to um, persuade yeah. to read their book. And the guy, the, or the one that comes to my mind when you say that, is the guy who worked in the post room in Random House for years. He was the post guy wheeling the trolley around delivering the post and secretly writing away. And of course, because he was the post boy and everybody knew him, the book got read and published and he's got quite a good career going there but yeah a foot Stuart, in the door. Stuart Hill who's one of our great writers um, started off as a bookseller and he, he sold um, he didn't sell children's books but he rang me up and blagged his way in to talk to me by saying he was going to order my books uh, I quickly discovered <laughs> that he didn't know anything about children's books and I said well okay okay so what, what books do you sell well he said well actually history and philosophy but I've met this but I've read this written this really excellent book so he read me the story so I mean do you any, any connection that you can have um, that, that is a professional in books to get 
your book read because that is the most difficult thing mm. to do um, and um, uh, really almost any route that you think um, is applicable to the people that you know or the people that you half know is, is appropriate. Mm. So agents, publishers, getting things read, getting writing to begin with, all those are very important. Mm. That the other constituents of, of, of children's writing, and of course there are various age ranges, and I think that most people want me to talk about the various age ranges as well. I mean, the, the, um, the much sort of vaunted 12-plus age range is, is the crossover, what's called the crossover market. And what we mean by this is, is that after Harry Potter, an enormous number of adults started reading children's books. Now, you could view that as a mixed blessing, but it's, of course, fantastic for me because I got many, many more purchases of the books. And uh, what you've got now, then, is, is, is a market which um, Mary knows particularly well because she publicises Christopher Pellini, mm. where you've got a huge children's audience, a huge adolescent, <coughs> and this huge crossover audience. Um, and yeah, fantasy, I think, is a genre that's traditionally been read a lot by adults and by, ch um, by children. Um, also, teenage novels, I mean, How I Live Now, Meg Rossoff, I think that's probably more widely read by adults, actually, than by children. But I think the teen market still is a smaller market, would you say, than the classic kind of 9 to 12-year-olds, which is the, the kind of core market for children's publishing. Seven to nines is probably an area that we could do with more really good quality material in. We've got Horrid Henry and our own Heather Dyer and um, Jeremy Strong, but there is definitely a lack of really good material in that in that area. Um, so it's no harm. I mean, I don't think that you should be necessarily completely driven by what you think the market is missing because you have to write the book that you know that connects with your feelings, as Barry said earlier. But it's probably no, no yeah. harm to have an eye on the um, market conditions. And there are waves of popularity. You know, boy mm. fiction is currently in a wave of popularity. Um, and as, as, uh, mm. as you say, seven to nine is in a slow of despair. Um, because the seven to nine market is, is, I think, potentially one of the heartlands of children's books. But it has been neglected and dominated by series. Picture books. People always ask me about mm. picture books. And... You know, we, last time I was here, we had a kind of a lively argument about this because, like, why were they in decline? But they, they certainly are in decline, and, and not only here, but almost throughout the world, with a, with a few exceptions. Um, and um, it could be for any number of reasons, um, but certainly as a market, they are, they are in decline. Now, um, there are still, you know, there's still active demand for a few picture books and a few very good ones. Um, libraries and schools support them but not as much as they used to um, if, if you've written a picture book it, it, it's a confusing area this because when you look at picture books you think well I've got to be able to write the story and the pictures but that really is hardly ever the case there are very few people who can write good enough stories and have, um, can do good enough pictures mostly um, picture book texts are written which the stories are written by somebody else and then the publisher marries them up with an illustrator. Um, we get an awful lot of picture book texts with 
with, with reasonable texts, reasonable stories, but illustrated by a member of the family. Now, maybe it's fine, but, but generally speaking, we have to have the awkward conversations. We like the text, but we don't like the pictures. Um, very occasionally the other way around, that we love the pictures and the text isn't very good. But it's extremely seldom to, to, to find um, you know, the combination that works, because, of course, they are really quite different skills. And, and the skill of, of storytelling through pictures um, in words is a very different skill from, from even imagining yourself how you'd illustrate them. And, and this can cause a quite uh, large degree of shock when the story that you wrote about, uh, based on your two cousins um, on holiday, um, the, the publisher insists in turning to two hedgehogs in Nevada. <laughs> but, you know, because that's because that, hedgehogs are the, are the moment and, and it, that sort of thing happens so you know you've got to you've got to perhaps more in any other part of children's books it's a collaborative process mm -hmm. picture books most stories get changed as the art is commissioned um, a lot of art changes you know if it comes in as art to fit the stories the, the whole thing it works as a team and very, very rarely does something end up the way it started off, mm. not necessarily in the children to hedgehogs um, <laughs> route, but in that way. So, um, so again, don't, if, you're, if you're sending stories in, don't feel they have to come with pictures, but it, is a very, it would be foolish to say it's not a really, really difficult part of the market at the moment. Mm. Rhyming texts, again, comes up. Rhyming texts are, are difficult because... A lot of publishing is international, and of course, a rhyme doesn't necessarily translate to a foreign language, or even American, with the famous tomato, tomato. So uh, something which rhymes here doesn't necessarily rhyme anywhere else at all. Um, so, so that makes it instantly more difficult. doesn't make it impossible, and there have been verse novels, one very successful one in America last year, one less successful mm. here, as well as, of course, conventional retellings of fairy tales, um, in verse and, and, and all those kind of things but it is no doubt about it it is again making it slightly more difficult um, children's poetry a very difficult area mm. as well it, it, it however just, successful yeah. the poets yeah. I always really feel for the poets because I think it's you know they're so talented and they rarely make money from publishing it's really from their performance fees you know e even Roger McGough Benjamin Zephaniah like people have been very successful in the children's world Mike Rose and it's, it's really not yeah. Not a good, not an easy way to make to no. make a living. And quite a lot of them, as you say, mm. are based around performance, really, or, or jokes, mm. rather than than poetry in any sensible sense of yeah. the word. So again, that's a very very difficult area, and, and not not a hugely commercial one. Um, so what else can I put you off? Um, but then you wouldn't not publish Carol Ann Duffy or no, something like that, would you? No. I mean, and, so that, and that, of course, is the wonderful thing about this business, yeah. in that we, we have all these very strict business models and, and how we're going to make money, and then we'll still publish something which is clearly, yes. clearly, absolutely bonkers to yeah. publish, but we just want to. Yeah. And, and every now and again, you know, those long 400-page novels called By Philosopher's Stone do occasionally kind of quite work. Mm. So, you know, it, it's a business that does break its models regularly and, and the good thing about the market that we're all talking about today the business we're all talking about the the inspiration we're all talking about is that it is a glorious era mm. there has never been a wider variety fueled by mm. harry potter but fueled by these new audiences 
fueled by boys who never read before, yeah. fueled by adolescents who come back to books, and mm. fueled by adults who suddenly realise, in Philip Pullman's words, that the serious things have always been going on in children's books, they just hadn't realised it before. Mm. So, you know, it's a glorious moment, and it is open. There is no, I don't think, any other business that I've come across that is open to brand new, unknown people mm. who, who are sitting in this room now and then in 18 months' time can have a book published and be an international mm. success. It, it can work. It certainly does work. But it does work with those criteria in terms of, of your attitude to it, why you're writing, your inspiration, and how you sustain your attitude to your job, um, which, which uh, mm. is, I think, necessary. You've got to treat it as seriously as anything else in your life, which I'm sure you are. You wouldn't be here. So um, that's kind of the, the briefest mm. roundup of what I think makes a good book, why I think you should think about various important things and some of the processes. But you'll also have lots and lots of questions and we can go down any other route that you want to. If one was to send um, an isolated piece of writing to me, uh, I'm assuming that it's created a flush pipe, and uh, then the question then is, how long would one have to wait uh, to hear from Chicken House? Yeah. Well, Chicken House um, we don't like to call them slush piles. But <laughs> <laughs> so people do. They are called slush people piles. People do. Not at um, the chicken house, obviously. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we have about a six-week turnaround. Now. Every, everything's read by a, a team of a team of people, and then you, it takes about six weeks to get back to someone. Sometimes longer. It's good. And I mean, yeah. this is Barry has had a team getting through two thousand manuscripts just in the last couple of months. Quite. But we only publish, you know, we are, we're a small publishing company. Wow, brilliant. But we still only publish, we publish 25 books a year of maybe six are brand new people that, that are debuts into the market. Um, uh, but we do publish those internationally, so that's why we take so long, really, in terms of publishing new people in a way, because we would spend maybe two years on working with you and your book <coughs> before we publish it. Which, is, which makes people faint, and people in the newspaper industry faint completely. Yeah. You know, the fact that we would take that long worrying about um, whether your goblin was the right goblin <laughs> behaviour mm. in that particular set of chapters, because and in that sense we're very, very old-fashioned, um, mm. that we spend a long time working with the author. That's why that first letter, why meeting you, why everything mm. about that goes on at the chicken house before we, we sign anybody up because we've got to be sure that you mean it and, and you've got to be sure that you'll work with us. Not that we'll always be right and, and um, Kevin Brooks is a great example. I had the mega rouse with him because he, he, um, he never finished the books and uh, I, I kind of said, well, you know, I, I think you're doing something and he said, no, you know, that's what's wrong with teenage books. You know, you, you have a pregnancy in chapter one, you have drug addiction in chapter four, you have death and bereavement in chapter five and at the end it's all wrapped up in some neat parcel. I don't believe we should say that. It should just, we should just show it goes on. Nothing is solved. You may win a small victory, but it doesn't mean anything. You know, you've got to keep on in there with the problems or the solutions. So I think that's fine, but can you tell me a little, <laughs> a little something a little about what happens at the end? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, the, the process of this isn't me saying I'm right or you saying you're right. It, it's, it's, um, it's like any relationship, and, and we spend a long time getting that right before we put a book out and, and, and see whether it flies. And with Stuart, with Cry of the Ice Mark, of course, um, going back to the kind of the wider story about you as a person, after he blagged his way through to Barry and um, discussed this... 
Yeah, he also, um, we found out then during the conversations that actually the story, the lead character in the story was very much based on his sister who had died as a teenager of leukemia and he had made this really strong heroine in the story, you know, it was based on her character and he hadn't had a very successful education. His education had been interrupted because of the huge family trauma around his sister's death and all of this came out, which of course was a you wonderful yeah yes we wanted to sell to, not in a cynical way i mean it was something that he was happy to talk about because it was true it wasn't that he had manufactured this story afterwards and um and the fact that he'd been a bookseller and he'd been slaving away writing the book actually in his break times in Waterstones and um, and Waterstones were quite happy to use that so you know during those conversations you you find out an awful lot more that 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 makes the author interesting as well as the story interesting and I think he was a good case in point yeah, but he didn't tell us something very very important we'd sold this oh, yes. we sold this <laughs> book to 20th Century Fox and we'd sold it in a very large way in America when uh, he revealed to me that he was agoraphobic and couldn't go on aeroplanes. <laughs> and I said, you, could he have mentioned it before? Yeah. <laughs> and so Barry booked him on a fear of flying course. And the day before the fear of flying course, I got this phone call. I was on a train platform somewhere. A phone call from Stuart saying, I'm too scared to do the fear of flying course. And he had had all these, you know, very gung-ho American instructors phoning him up saying, it's really easy, you know, it's going to be great. We did it, we couldn't fly, and we're, we've all come through. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't do it. And he had other phobias too, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he can't go up um, beyond the first floor. No, he almost killed someone from Reuters, I think, wasn't it? Felt that they had to yeah. accompany him up 25 flights of stairs. Yeah. So you see why I want to know all about you. These <laughs> <laughs> things can go wrong. Um, yeah, but w w whether a 9 to 12 um, year old age group story uh, is, is beneficial to be set in Ireland and whether it has an adult protagonist um, I thought the easiest one first really it doesn't matter about the adult protagonist I don't think children's books necessarily have to have solely children's characters and I think that in the great tradition of of Long John Silver or something like that you can have magnificent adult characters in fact in Cornelia Funke's Inkheart, a huge seller for us the most popular character isn't the little girl Maggie but it's Dustfinger by mm. a long way um, and cool. so I really think that matters I think you have to, I think it is an advantage to have a children's focus Cornelia's latest book which I'm wrestling with her about hasn't got any children in at all and I do think it's, it's slightly more problematic just from the point of view of familiarity with what's being how things are being described you haven't got a vehicle to to, to say something that, that a child might want to say in that situation so I think it's a little disabling but I don't think it's absolutely necessary um, and I really don't think it matters where it's set as long as the setting isn't so local that the local becomes an important part of the way the only way you can see it if there's something local about the local knowledge or the local familiarity or there's something local that you're not telling us about, which everybody locally understands, then that becomes, again, disabling to the plot. Um, and I think that then that matters. 
but otherwise um, I don't I think it, it I mean I think anything anywhere set that is wonderful and inspiring or mysterious or dark or frightening <laughs> is, is, is fine you know and um, I don't think a book set in Ireland won't sell anywhere else quite quite the opposite but I think if you um, if you do pick too much local assumption or too much um, um, if you make it too local in in um, in theme, then that sometimes mm. can. Although Kevin books are set in Essex, but they're about a universal mm. experience, so we don't translate them in America, as it were. In fact, they like an English slang. Um, we try to change some of the mild swear words to American last mm. words, and they said, "Oh no, no, it's you know, we we prefer it like that." Yeah, <laughs> but this is very very rude. I shouldn't say it's in Saturday afternoon, but. For some reason, Amer- uh, slightly beyond me, Americans think wanker is the, the, is the funniest swear word anybody <laughs> has ever invented. And, and, and you can see that when American bands come. They, they always shout out, hello, you wankers! <laughs> Not realising it's vaguely offensive. <laughs> they just think it's hilarious. And I don't quite know why. I fathomed it. And Skullduggery Pleasant was set in Dublin. You know, and that was massively successful. Last year. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I will, um, but I I need you to. I will read it. And how could I preach getting books read when I don't at an event like this? But you'd have to send it to me, I'm afraid. My bag's already full from Belfast. But I'll give you my address and card, and you can send it to me. It is complicated because, as everybody with children knows, this is a kind of ludicrous conversation in a way because every child has a different reading level and a different ability level. But we have to um, try and come up with kind of categories and common denominators. Now, seven to nine in itself, at the youngest end of that, uh, are storybooks with lots and lots of pictures, um, heavily, heavily illustrated in black and white and sometimes in colour. Um, whereas towards the top end of that the pictures tend to become smaller and, and become less, less the predominant part of the text so, so the length of text in that, in that, just in that tiny age range uh, varies a lot now a lot of publishers have series that are specifically aimed at the younger kind of six to sevens or seven to nines and they have um, particular word counts they have particular amounts of illustration and particular page numbers and particular um, vocabulary um, criteria Mm. and if you want to write um, for them then you can apply to write in those series I mean they sometimes commission well known people but they also use other people and and they'll be very very specific about that um, differentiation now I am incapable of doing series like that because I haven't got enough you know I can't do it but 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 there are very successful um, kind of series which I guess in the old days would have been largely school series but are now not and have sold out of bookstores 
um, and sometimes into schools. Um, on, on the kind of the philosophic level of that, in Europe and somewhat in America, they have picture books with much longer texts because um, they don't seem to have the prejudice we have, which is about picture books being for the very young. So they, they uh, um, European picture books and somewhat American books, and of course Japanese picture books have much longer texts, um, and um, they are they are read by older children. But here. The, the assumption appears to be that a 32-page book in colour is for a very young child, so it generally has a shorter text. Um, now, there's no logic to any of that, and, and you could say that what's been happening in the market is that parents, for some reason, have been buying those younger storybooks, still with lots of pictures, going up to Horrid Henry and, and going through that sort of direction, rather than starting off with picture books, except at the very, very youngest level of, of spotting objects. Mm. Maybe we just haven't been doing good enough books, which is what somebody said the other day. It's your fault because publishers over-published picture books just with pretty pictures and not proper stories. Mm. Or that you haven't just produced what people need. And, and it's difficult, you know, the, the, the whole picture thing is really difficult because at the other end, people say, well, you should be doing graphic novels, you should be doing um, cartoon storybooks. Um, and, and that's starting to happen in the Artemis Fowl graphic yeah, novel is a big novel. success based on something that's already well known and every now and again something completely different comes along and just is a huge success is it the Hugo Cabret Hugo yeah. the Scholastic one yeah, which is like almost film still to tell the story partly in text and partly in pictures black and white beautiful object I mean it's an amazing book and that just breaks all the rules really doesn't it yeah. or something like Neil Gaiman's Walls yeah. on the Wall which breaks yeah. all the rules but actually didn't sell very many having broken all the rules because no. it didn't have a perceivable person to buy it you know so I mean if, if you're doing something interesting in picture stories mm. for younger children um, then I, I, I think that that if the story's good enough, then the publisher will worry for you about how they're going to do it, whether it's, a, it's an older picture book or a younger story book. You know, um, mm. we, we published Heather Dyer, and she started off by writing something which arguably could have been a, a, a picture book, but we said, let's make it a little bit longer, because I think you'd be better telling a slightly longer story. But we knew she was brilliant, so we just had to find a way to help her be brilliant. But um, it is—it's a very difficult thing, and I know that here there is there is um, there are some good and regularly big-selling Irish picture books. Um, uh, but but in in the international market, it, it's very tricky. Mm. And I think culturally, there's something where we seem to want children to move on and leave pictures behind, which is a great shame. But I do think there's that sense of, oh, my seven-year-old read Northern Lights. Isn't that marvellous? No, it isn't marvellous. And um, I just think it's a shame that we don't encourage them to enjoy picture books, that we should all enjoy picture books, really. I'm, I'm really keen on pictures. We put pictures in fiction quite a lot, older boys' fiction as well, you know, because I think pictures are great, you know. And um, so we put a lot of what we call line illustrations, black and white pictures and I'd like to expand that you know we talked to Kevin um, before he left us from Penguin but <laughs> we talked to Kevin about we putting maybe like anyway. standalone <laughs> art in some of his books you know that would just be complementary without mm. being illustrative you know mm. so I, th I think there's a lot we've got to learn about um, how we use pictures in books really.
And you were in discussions about a manga version of Tunnels? Or yeah, I, I, yeah. St- I still am. I'm confused by the Japanese, though. So I, <laughs> I am in discussion. So there's a lady in the middle who's been wanting to ask. together, which is so much a part of that experience with the right book, obviously, but sometimes it's, it, it's really encouraging parents to, um, to just have that experience, which is, which is so difficult mm-hmm. for picture books, which is maybe why they don't do it anymore, maybe, you know, maybe it's a self-perpetuating circle that there aren't any books because people don't do that kind of thing enough. Sorry, I, the lady in the middle who I... I wish there was. No, no. Some people write outrageously long books. Um, Michelle Magorian, who, yes. who uh, Mary's just promoting <laughs> now, has written, what, a 400-page um, book? Well, it's 800 pages um, in its proof, like the bound proof. Um, it's like a brick. And apparently it was, you know, about 1,200 when um, the manuscript came in. Sorry, it was about 1,200. <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, people, I mean, I'm trying to keep the, I, I do think there's some kind of limit. I try and keep them down below 500 pages, which is about 120,000 words, which seems to me quite enough. But there are regularly books that exceed mm. that. I, 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 I'm not a fan of it myself. I mean, I'm the man who bought you Harry Potter. But I didn't edit those very long ones, I have to say. But I, 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 can't, I can't see that they should be that long. But there isn't a limit. I would like to see something under 100,000 words maximum for that. Yes, yeah, sorry, the, the, the question out there is, is there any kind of maximum limit to older children's books in the, in the um, kind of maximising at 12 years old? And we're just saying that sadly there isn't, though I would like them to be. Mm-hmm. The, the, I, I think 120,000 words is well enough, but people do write more. Um, Adrian Chambers wrote that one, The Pillar Book of... Cordelia something was it Aiden Chambers a couple of years ago and again that came in at over 800 pages wonderful novel but you do wonder how many people actually got through to the end yeah so, mm. yes that side mm. um, is it, it 
Ah, so interesting. Yes, well, this is a question about is there a minimum length for, for an older novel? Um, there isn't. There have been some remarkable... We, we're just publishing a wonderful story um, called Dog Lost, which is um, 200 pages. Um, and it's just a, a wonderful story about a, a, a puppy um, who's a pit bull puppy, so he's hated. But anyway, it's, it's a short book. Um, I, I think that, um, that, that, that there isn't. Um, Darren Shan's books, are, yeah, quite, quite Shan's books are quite small. Um, Neil Gaiman had a wonderful little horror story for children called Coraline a few years ago. And that's probably 100 pages, maybe not much more. Um, so I, I think short stories... Um, Short stories, uh, like in the uh, perhaps a little less acute than the, the adult mm. market, I, th I think they are wonderful places to learn your craft. And um, we semi-sponsor a short story uh, competition in the West Country. Semi, because it, it's just run in schools, not public. But I d I, it's difficult to publish them. Um, of course, a lot of younger children's books in the seven to nine-year-old age range are short stories, really. They're linked incidents based around an umbrella event in the same way that the Just William books were actually short stories based around, you know. Um, uh, so an awful lot of episodic younger children's books have separately related incidents loosely linked with a theme. Um, so they are short stories, really. In I don't have any problem with publishing short stories. Um, I, I, I suppose I've never, I've never. I think there's lots of quotes, aren't there, by famous writers who just say that writing a short story is one of the most difficult things you can do. And I suppose I've never been approached with a coherently good collection of short stories. Um, and then I probably would um, publish them. I don't see any real reason why not. And you could say, of course, as everybody often does, well, they're perfect for children because they're, you know, they're different. And, and there are plenty of anthologies. There are horror story anthologies and, and things like that. So anthologies certainly exist. Tony Bradman, who's a UK editor and writer, um, is a compiler of perhaps the most successful anthologies of various kinds of short story. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it is a market. It's not. It's not one that that has been hugely. Um, they don't tend to sell. I mean, no. booksellers do not jump up and down in delight um, if we tell them that we're planning to have a book of short stories. Mm. There have been a number published um, for charity, kind of over the years. Um, War Child have done a number. There's been a kind of girls' night in, girls' night out, boys' night in, boys' night out, mm -hmm. all for charity. The Teenage Cancer Trust, there was one published. Yeah. And they do okay, but they're not, you know, great markets. But, but for really. a series, like um, for Judy B. Jones or, yeah. or something like that, when actually each book is more or less, um, for seven to nine, mm. is more or less a short story. You know, that, that kind of think of it like that, I suppose. Um, and I certainly think that they're, they're an awfully big discipline. Well, people people um, have different opinions about that. I, I think that the protagonists in all children's books are largely either slightly older or the same age for the age you're aiming at. Um, largely, but that's not necessarily true. But that, but it's a useful kind of rule of thumb, really. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think some authors keep the age deliberately vague because they feel you could lose your older readers. Like a thirteen-year-old might not want to read about a ten-year-old. 
so it's quite good to be a little bit vague. Yeah. 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 It's a bit of a debate, though, because while authors like to blur these things, children really want to know the answer, Mm. (laughs) you know, because they want to know if it's six and three quarters or seven and a half. (laughs) Um, In the same way, they want to know what they ate for dinner. Um, and this kind of vagueness is not appreciated by the audience. <laughs> um, do you know, I've asked that only the other day, and, and uh, th- there is a small market that I know about, which is mainly the Unicorn Theatre in London that, that commissions children's work. Um, m- the most successful plays that I've ever done have been play adaptions of an already successful book. Um, and of course the scripts which are interesting we did Melvin Burgess did Billy Elliot for us from a script from the movie which then became an enormously successful book Um, so the the process um, I I think is is possible but I think original original children's plays in the mainstream is is not a big category although there are publishers Steve Skidmore and Steve Barlow who are quite well known children's writers write um, plays for Longman to publish into schools for specific school performance purposes <laughs> but in the generality um, no it, I think they have to be based on something which is already successful sorry yep. Can I ask you Um, the, the question is if the PR consultant works with the pub- publisher on behalf of the author or with the author on behalf of the publisher and um, I would always be employed by the publisher the publisher would be my client and then I would work very closely with the author but I'm not employed ever directly by authors although I have been asked on occasion um, but, but it's, it's always the publisher who would employ the publicist Almost always. I know of one or two exceptions. Yes, I would, yeah. The lady in orange at the back. Um, the, the, the question is a technical one, really. Is is it better or more popular to, to use a first-person narrator than a third-person person narrator or some other device? Um, um, I think a first-person narration has much more immediacy for a relatively short book. Um, and for a teenage book, it obviously has an enormous amount of impact. And for a, um, a, an immediate direct experience book like Hatchet or something like that, but I think for a more complicated narrative, you wind yourself into such a tight corner um, that you need multiple narration or third-party narration. I think the more complicated the story is, the more difficult that is to sustain. Um, and, and it can really limit the ability. But if you're talking about something very direct, very experiential, I always try to say words I can't really say, <laughs> then, and especially for teenage confession type, you know, this happened to me, I'm going to tell you about it. Then, that, then, then I think first person is brilliant and, and much more direct for children. Two questions. Uh, one is, if you're a 
I, I think the best thing is to mention it, but only send one at once. So the question is, if you've got one or more pieces of work that you want to submit, is it better to do them one at a time rather than a bunch? And I think absolutely send them one at a time, but a mention um, what else you've written. And also it's about the same character. Um, mention how you see that character developing. I mean, one of the most common and rather comic to other people <laughs> situations we get into is when we publish a first of a trilogy when they haven't quite worked out what happens in the third and we've inadvertently killed someone off that we can't then bring back. You know, you get yourself into these absolutely awful situations. And the Well, the most professional thing to do is to have a look at a 32-page picture book, which is the common number, of, and, set, and see how a story is set out. See how a narrative flows through the pictures. Set it out as if that is your story, but don't put any pictures in. Don't even put in any indication of pictures, in my experience. I mean, you can put an indication of pictures if you want, but the most important thing is to show that you have thought about how your story breaks down into the 32 pages as it turns over. And that is really the most professional and important thing to do, instead of just putting it as a stream of text. Yes. And you've thought about how it goes as you turn the pictures over. So the reveals come as you turn the pictures over. And, you know, so, so you've already got there in the mind of the first thing the first person's going to think is, how does this work? Well, sometimes it's, it's, some, it's, it's question. interesting. Is a question? <laughs> uh, the question is, uh, how much is a long book really necessary? Well, you know, to a fan, to, to Harry Potter's fans, they don't care if it's too much, you know. They just want more stuff. And to fans of existing series, they generally don't care. You know, the longer the better, you know. You can't say to Roald Dahl and J.K. Rowling, can we have less? It's not what a fan would say. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, in terms of, of the strict nature of the book itself, a lot of people love those really, even, you know, even quite young children get lost in really long books, and, and it seems to be a huge appetite for them. Mm. I personally think anything that drives itself over 400 pages is, is too long. But, um, but, you know, the fans often don't agree. And Christopher, I'm not sure how long is the new one. <laughs> oh, it looks enormous, actually. I don't know how long it is. But I do think that it, once you establish your readership, you can take all kinds of risks and they will go with you. You know, Darren Shand's latest series, The Demonata, I think the first three books, each of them had a different main character. And it's only book four, book five of the series that you begin to see how the whole thing is linked together. And so his fans kind of trust him to go with that and that it will all come together as a story and in the Blood end. And Beast Tattoo um, had more footnotes than it had novel. <laughs> um, you know, about stuff that you might want to know should you have read the book. <laughs> No, I think you should say who you've aimed it for and who you have in mind. Um, I was listening um, with respect to what you were saying about the kind of quite a subject, um, and it would be great 
I, I think the conventional wisdom is that you need an agent, and it certainly is short, a shortcut to getting your book read. I think the downsides of it um, relate to which agent you choose. And I think if, you, if, if it was me, then what I would do is I'd start out using all my inspiration and contacts and ability to persuade people to try and get me read first and then go to an agent then. Because most of the authors that I deal with have said, you know, if I'd known that I could get through, I wouldn't have locked myself into this, you know. Um, so I, I would try first. But the conventional wisdom, and it would be foolish to say it wasn't true, would be that um, for most big publishers, the easiest way of getting read and, and the most effective is to get yourself an agent. I was published, I had a job before publishing the state to a very shady publisher, and it sold quite well. Now, if I'm, I bought back the rights, so if I'm sending that out to, well, I have got yeah. the chicken head. Did I mention the previous book sales, which have been, I just found out recently quite high? Yes, yes, yes. The question is, if you've had it published anywhere before, and uh, with a particularly not very good experience of an American publisher who took it on, should you send it in with all that information, or should you pretend it's never been published before? I think you should send it in with the information of, of what it's done before, because that will be revealed. You know, if it goes any further, that will come up on all the systems anyway. So it's good to know that. And there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of um, smaller to, well, there are vanity publishers as well that make a mess of things. So it's not, a, it's not always, yeah. it's not always. A and when it's a really thing. big success in the UK, then those American editions yeah. will go for a fortune on eBay. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, you should mention that as well. <laughs> and, but very importantly, when you sign away the rights to the independent publisher in Ireland, okay, well, it, when, at the point that you do, make sure you're only giving them the, the rights to do it in that format, in the graphic novel format. He's not getting rights to do it in anything else they can imagine. I think that, that start with the second question first. I think illustration agencies are very important. And I think that there are a number of very good illustration agencies that can look for you for work not only in publishing but in magazines, um, greetings cards and all those areas. And really, uh, I would say, um, contrary to the things that I may have indicated about authors, I think artists need illustrators agents because it's just way too complicated to try and do that yourself unless you're very, very successful. So I, I think you need an illustrator's agent for that. 
Um, uh, for pictures alone, someone has, we don't do that many picture books, but we do look at art that comes in. But we're such a small, it's such a small part of our world that it wouldn't necessarily, we wouldn't necessarily be the right people. Um, but I think artists' agents uh, in that field are, are very important because of the breadth of work they can find. Um, in terms of, of those kind of uh, building your own story books, th th again, I think that, that there are specialist publishers. Child's Play in the United Kingdom is one of them that does look at um, ways to build up books and learning and words which are particularly related to learning skills and, and in the home environment as well. Um, and there are, there are quite a lot of that, that whole vanguard of sort of what you might call early, early learning skills, storytelling. There are quite a lot of publishers in the United States and in the United Kingdom in that area. Um, it's, it tends to be a specialist area and they tend to buy your copyrights off you. But, you know, that's, um, that's, that's, that's okay. <laughs> um, so it, it is, I, I would look at a specialist publisher for those and there are quite a lot of them. This is my Harry Potter question. This is where, where, how did I know? Um, I, I think, obviously, kind of, it's 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 all 2020 vision, the past, isn't it? Um, and the, certainly, the sky didn't open, and nobody tapped me on the shoulder and said this is going to be the most important decision that, that has ever been made in publishing. Um, I read it, and and um, the reason why I I decided on it, I, I liked it to begin with, to be frank because it slightly reminded me of Roald Dahl to begin with. And then as I read it on, um, I, I thought, and this is really truthful, I really thought that I really loved the relationship between the children. And I think it's the relationship between children, the way they give each other valour, the way that they inspire each other against adult misunderstandings mm -hmm. and adults putting them down and injustice happening to them time and time again and the way that they bring themselves through that, which I thought was going to be in the way that I spoke at the very beginning of this, about why I think children's books ultimately work. And of course I love I loved the flying owls and the hogwarts and the wizards, and, and I, um, famously she and I gave up trying to work out the rules of Quidditch, because I couldn't be bothered and I didn't understand it. <laughs> and I said, look, I said, no one's ever going to worry about this except you and me, let's just leave it. And of course, immense problems to the movie makers, of course. So. But, um, uh, so I really liked it because of the children's relationship, and I think that's what's made Harry last, I think. Um, as well as all the kind of pyrotechnics around it. But I didn't know everybody else had turned it down. <laughs> I think it does. I think if, if, um, if it really has a sequel, if it really does lead somewhere, I get very bored with the, this is going to be a trilogy. You know, when there's no real reason why the first one is going anywhere. You know, if, if, if there's a reason for a sequel, I'm excited. But if it's just padding, you know, if it's just because trilogies are what sells, then I'm not. Because then that can stretch an already thin plot way past bursting. And then you're often locked in one of those dreadful situations where you owe it to the children to get to the third part. But nobody else is listening, you know. And, and I don't want to do that. And, and I have, you know, it's been very touch and go. We've had more work to do on the third part of trilogies 
than anything else I do, trying to make them as good as the first book. And I think reviewers are quite weary of it at the moment too. I've had several reviewers say to me recently that they would just love to have a, just a wonderful novel that comes to an end and that's the end of the story. Um, it doesn't happen often. It's Lady in the Grey. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There, there can be a, there can be any combination of, of of anything. I think that that I mean, Darren writes um, seven part short novels, mm. um, and there can be just books with sequels. Um, Chris Riddell and Paul Stewart, The Edge Chronicles. I think yeah. they were two sequences. I think they call yeah. them sequences of five. The sequence. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, so it's sequences. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I worry. You know, when Joe Rowling came to see me and we had a cup of tea, and she said, "How do you feel about sequels?" And when I hadn't published the first one, I do get edgy, you know, because you just see these things, you know, retreating into the distance. And I think it is. It, is, it takes enormous skill to keep up a sequence, mm. to, to not only to plan it from the beginning, which most people don't, about what's actually going to keep your interest, but, um, but to keep it um, re reborn all the time. And obviously... Joe Rowling, having Harry grow up, was, was radical in that he faced lots of difficulties himself, as well as what happens in the story. But actually, to, to pull off a sequence of novels, proper novels, like, you know, Philip Pullman, you, I, mean, abs I mean, I think Northern Lights is, is possibly the most important children's book ever. Um, but, but, you know, the second and third part, I think, struggle in part, you know. It's very, very difficult. And I think there are problems for the author. I mean, firstly, in your own motivation to keep going and keep interested in that world and maintain it. And also, I think, then maybe in letting it go, you know, when you come to the end of it. And I think that both of those are problems that, that authors I have had. It's a glorious problem to have, but you can have a cartoon of lots of sequence, you know. And then you can have a cartoon of author when, author, when audience don't want to read anything yeah. else. Rest. But, but the dragon you created in the first <laughs> novel, you know. question is about age appropriateness. Age appropriateness. I think the most, the most important thing is to look into your own experience and the people you're writing for and decide what you think is age appropriate experience for you primarily and for the, your audience by looking around you. I think in, in, in terms of suitability, um, I do think that um, I am quite, sens another word I can't say, I am quite censorious. I don't, at the top end of that, I do think that some things are not age, unless dealt with in an absolutely brilliant way, mm -hmm. are frightening and shocking and difficult. Um, and, not, and unless they're pulled off absolutely brilliantly, then, then I, I, I worry about the kind of children's books that slaps over into adult chiclet. And, and I, I'm uneasy about it. And because I don't have to publish anything I don't want to publish, and nobody tells me what to publish, then I won't publish things that I think slap over awkwardly into that area. And I think that gets to be abusive uh, of children. 
actually, sometimes. Anyway, it's a different subject, I fancy. <laughs> right at the back, with our youngest member of the audience. <laughs> Well, self-publishing is, very, is a question about self-publishing, good or bad. This is different from the kind of small publisher that takes you on and messes it up, or a vanity publisher which should be avoided at all costs, which makes you pay for messing it up. Um, so th- this is when you are very, very um, determined to get your book published for whatever reason, um, it's not being published commercially or you don't want it published commercially you print the book yourself you keep the copies in your garage and you sell them to bookstores and libraries and passerby um, I think it's incredibly dangerous and risky um, but very very good I mean Christopher Bellini's pub self-published first um, Tunnels, our big success of last year was first published as Highfield Mole and, and they spent all their money doing it G.P. Taylor yeah, was G.P. Taylor was so it can be done and, it, it, and it's it works like nothing else in a way of grabbing people's attention and saying, look, I can show you what it does. Um, but I do think the mu- for everyone that we've come across, like all those names yeah. we've mentioned, there must be so many self-publishers where people have you know, used up all their savings. Yeah, there are, there are a lot. And even reasonably successful ones. There's a series, mm-hmm. that I can't remember the name, that was through Waterstones. Waterstones took them. And it was quite successful. I, I actually turned it down, but, but I, I don't, you know, that was just my decision. And they self-published it. And it did quite well. But, of course, the economics of doing quite well is, is fearsome. Because, I mean, it did pretty well, but 40% came back. Mm. So you had to put it in your warehouse, you know, in your garage. So, you know, the, the economies of doing it are incredibly <laughs> tough. I mean, they're tough for me, and I, I do it around the world, let alone doing it from my garage. So it is very difficult. I think um, if you've got a small defined market, a lot of poetry is self-published, a lot of local books are self-published, that can be fine. You know your market, you know who's going to sell it, you don't have to print very many. But if you're going out there into the big world and self-publishing, it's very risky. And I don't know anybody, any of these people who've been successful that have decided they'd like to carry on and do it. As soon as they can upload all the risk onto us, then they, they would like that to happen. Hello. Repeat the question. The, the, the question is, is a very difficult one, um, and it's about, you know, here I'm being censorious, if I could pronounce it, about... Um, chick lit that slaps over into adult books which is an unfortunate phrase uh, beyond that to the go- gossip girls area mm. I think um, and whether I feel equally um, reserved about boy literature of the kind of boy soldier type together with the, um, with, with the more graphic ends of violence um, I, I, don't, I don't feel um, I don't feel censorious when w- w- in terms of the action, certainly not, and stylized action. Um, I, do, I do feel vaguely censorious um, about... I think that in children's books, we've all been brought up, and I've been brought up for a very long time, to put things in context. Uh, and um, I, I think that almost anything relating to children has to be set in a context of its framework if not a moral framework at least a framework and I think if it doesn't do that it worries me 
And, and I think that there have to be some people. It's terrible, terrible. I, I'm a child of the 60s. How can I say this? But there should be some people to say that that hasn't got a framework. And it may be a great book, but I'm not doing it. Yeah, it's gratuitous. But is and it I more to do with sexuality line. then? If it's only and I think violence is pornography as well. Mm. And I think you've got to be careful. And I think we have to be careful. Because somehow we are... I mean, it sounds terrible. I can't believe I'm saying this. But somehow we are guardians of that imagination. Mm. And that, you know, somehow we've got to know that I'm not in adult books for a reason. I'm here because of age-related experience. Mm and because of the responsibility that we have as adults at creating that experience for young people. And I kind of think you, you owe it to them. Because, blimey, they're going to get enough un uncensored experience on film and television with, you know, blowing away chinks or some kind of fun, you know. And then they're going to be sent to do it in, in the real life in Iraq, you know. So some of us have got to kind of put it in the context, haven't they? So I do think, I do feel, I do feel... See, I'd be more liberal with that, because I think a 13-year-old girl reading Gossip Girls will know it's trashy, and she'll probably be reading all kinds of other things too, but I would agree with your right to not publish it <laughs> completely. But I, I have a 12-year-old daughter who hasn't encountered Gossip Girls yet, but I, I think that she would know it's, that the values, you know, it's all shopping, isn't it, um, and brand names, that it's all just nonsense, really. I don't know that I'd be worried about her reading it. I think I mean, we have disagreement. It's yeah. good, isn't it? I, I think that that's right, and I think that in, in, if the book's written properly, then that mm. will emerge. Mm. Uh, I, I think I think probably you kind of think that one of the issues with childhood is that we assume they can make all these difficult decisions mm. now, and that somehow they'll they'll tell the difference between you know um, awful behaviour and celebrity behaviour, and somehow mm. there's a judgment line. I don't believe you necessarily mm. can just like that. Oh, in celebrity publishing, of course, there's a whole new area for children's markets, which isn't entirely welcome, I have to so say. Jordan's in the room. See me afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> She's Katie Price now, I believe. <laughs> We, it's, very, it's, it's kind of a rather um, a kind of geeky question for me because I've recently become terribly obsessed with translators. Um, no, 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 I'm geeky. No, I, it's a geeky question because I'm going to give you a geeky answer to a very reasonable, intelligent, sensitive question. But um, uh, the, 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 when I first started getting European books translated, I thought they just gave it to some bloke who spoke German and he gave you back the translation. But this has proved to be not the case. And every, every translation that you have is, is like a different voice, you know? And trying to find suit the right translator's voice to the right author is really, really difficult. And we, we go through a lot of kind of auditions see whether we like the voice and the author likes the voice in, in English if they can speak mm -hmm. English. If they don't speak English then it's up to me to judge the voice and it's really difficult mm -hmm. to, de to decide whether the bits that I've read in translation and the reason why I bought the book in the first place translates to what it is in English. Um, we're just doing uh, a German writer called Kirsten Boy, who, boy, who who's huge success in Germany. She speaks some English but we are having a kind of a complete um, creative tussle really about trying to find exactly the right translator mm. um, and of course our books are translated around the world and I've no idea how they appear mm. but Cornelia um, and Anthea love each other don't they yeah. and then um, when they meet it's quite funny because Anthea Bell will say 
Cornelia Funke yeah. is translated, yeah. yeah. And Cornelia will say, oh, thank you for making my words so beautiful. Yeah. And Anthea will say, oh, thank you for writing the beautiful words. And, you know, you know, I think, interestingly, Cornelia started writing in English. And because she lives in America now, because she makes so much money, she lives in Hollywood. But um, uh, when she writes in English, it's not the same voice as Anthea. Yeah. <laughs> when she writes her own books in English in the future, it won't sound like no. she does in English now, which is really weird. So we're thinking of getting it retranslated <laughs> <laughs> and see what we think of that. It's, um, it's a funny old world. Um, I'm having a bit of difficulty with um, gauging the right vocabulary in language for, say, a 10-year-old. Eavesdrop. Yes, I think. Yeah. Oh, the question was about gauging the right language for ten-year-olds. I think you just you just have to use a reasonable um, a reasonable level of language that works for you, and then mm. it, you know the public. If, if the works you know good enough, as I'm sure it will be, the publisher will say, look, I don't. I think you put that a bit more simply, or use a different word. You know. So the the question was how you choose language, and I think apart from eavesdropping, I think it's. Um, uh, you, you can over eavesdrop because a lot of children use slang which they don't they use in speech but they actually understand you know more complicated mm-hmm. levels of language and the other thing about boys and violence and girls and sex is that um, or girls and violence or, girls and boys and, oh, or, or the other one uh, <laughs> is that my experience of listening to children in the back of my car for hundreds of years um, is that of course what they talk about is not what they mean and, and certainly it would be completely wrong to confuse the kind of language that you hear from hoodies in the shopping centre with actually what boys, and I speak for every boy in this room, actually what the inner soul of boys mm. is about. is not about grunting and shoving each other, though you may think <laughs> it is, you know. But, but, but you know, the, the inner language of children is not necessarily dictated by the, uh, by, by the vagaries of popular expression. And, and certainly our experience of the books that we sell, you'd be surprised... Mm you'd be surprised about the, the audience who come to the signing sessions when you think that, you know, you're only being, you know, you're, you're only going to be read by the, um, by the sensitive ones. Mm. Actually, you know, the, the same child... Kids come to, yeah, along to. The same child that read Captain Underpants in the morning will read Philip Pullman yeah. in the afternoon on the same day, you know. It's not like, it's not so prejudiced as we are about what we like and what we like, don't like. Oh. Oh, thank you you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, you. and I'm glad we have this agreement. Perhaps we can come back (laughs) and have a bigger round. And um, I think Mary's got to go, but I've probably got time for one more question if if there's anybody bursting outside. It's like having, you know, Glastonbury screens, isn't it? (laughs) If there's anybody outside that's got a question, um, do, do, do ask it now. In the meanwhile, there's somebody over there. Mm-hmm. Non-fiction is largely commissioned, um, and um, it, it, it's a difficult area of publishing at the moment because of the internet. Um, there is entertainment non-fiction called faction, I think, mm-hmm. which is like horrible histories and things like that, and, and that's quite quite a significant market. You know, popular subjects, the kind of children's equivalent of each shoots and leaves. You know. Mm-hmm. Quite, a, quite serious subjects, and I always think, you know, we, when I was at Bloomsbury, we um, 
we had a, a wing of what we did, which, which did things like Echo Warrior books and um, animal rights books. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very successful at the time. Um, and yeah, I always think, actually, there is, a, there is room for kind of slightly fun, politicalized social comment, you know, mm-hmm. in an entertainment format, you know. Um, so I think there is a market for that, but there's not one currently, except in Horrible Histories and Horrible Science. Mm-hmm. And then there's those non-fiction, you know, reference works which are actually under threat because of the internet. I, I just want to ask a question about endings. Um, no, I've learned that they're not, you know. I, I, I think happy, clappy endings are, are the ones that you always have in your mind if you haven't read it, you know, worked on it. Um, and Americans sometimes um, ask for a more conventional ending than we've provided in Europe. I think it's, it's a big question. I think if, if what you're, if, you know, it's interesting the Cone brothers and you know <laughs> atonement or something isn't it I mean like you, if you're going to end something without giving the reader conventional satisfaction on character and plot then you've got to deliver something else which mm. is just as important and I think often the books, yeah, the books sometimes people feel most passionately about are the ones that haven't given them the happy ending I mean teenagers certainly uh, you know in England absolutely love Noughts and Crosses the Mallory Blackman the first of that trilogy in particular where you know the character is hung and when I read that first I was thinking is she going to do this is she going to go through with it I couldn't believe that she was actually going to kill this guy and she did, and that's the very reason why that book is so so much loved. So I think it is about, and Kevin obviously... Is yeah, I mean, Kevin, Kevin's a really good example, Kevin Brooks. Have a look at some of the endings. And, and it's really, I just, it was, it's a very important story about anybody worrying about endings. That, um, there's two things, really. That in, in a book called um, Kissing the Rain, I actually, I actually got him to change the ending because it was too definite, because somebody killed somebody. And I wanted, I said, I don't believe he would have done and he said, I, I don't, I believe he would. And I said, well, the thing to do, we strongly feel this, is to not, not let it be decided whether he killed mm. the person or not. But we were in a, a school in America, and another book of his called Lucas, which is brilliant. And it ends up with the main character walking across these mudflats and, and, and clearly jumping off the safe path to kill himself because he's being pursued and that sort of stuff happening. Clearly dead. And these two girls, about the same position of the audience you were, they, they kind of, Nudged I could see them nudging each other as we were getting towards the end of the presentation. And they both, they both stood up and they said, you're wrong. They said, and they're really brave, and they said, you're wrong. Lucas doesn't die. We're absolutely sure, and these are the reasons why he'll never die. And, and other people started joining in in the, in the room, and they said, no, we agree. Lucas isn't dead, because he was a blue-eyed boy, and they all, they all and associated. Kind of like and, an and Kevin was saying, no, no, I killed him. And they said, no. And it was at that moment, that moment which you will all have, that the ownership of this book passed from him yeah. to his audience, yeah. and what they thought was just as important as what he thought. Mm-hmm. And so you can't necessarily be in charge of what people think of your books. Mm-hmm. Um, you can just 
you can give them what you're thinking, but what they'll go away and think, what I think about Wuthering Heights, I'm fairly sure Emily, Ro- Emily Bronte didn't think about <laughs> Wuthering Heights. You know, but it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's the most empowering thing you can do is to make it live in their minds yeah. as and much as it did in yours. And he says that the book isn't finished until the reader has read it, you know, yeah. that it isn't really complete, the process, until it actually has been read. So we, we haven't done enough veneration to that process. Really. We haven't all said, well, no, it doesn't matter what we do. At the end of the day, it, it, it's the boy it's or girl the boy, on yeah. the bus who, who will decide whether this works or whether your characters are believable or whether they're interested in a sequel or whether it's too long or it's too short or it's not got enough pictures. We, you know, we're, just, mm. we're just stumbling. Anyway, thank um, you. Can yes? you email no, because okay. it's blocked up the printer. <laughs> yes, we have to know. I'll just anybody who wants to write this down, I'll tell you how you submit to the chicken house. Poor. <laughs> give the website address as well. Yeah, the website address that you can see what we publish and kind of some stuff about us. And you can see the winners, I think the short list of the writers' competition, which is finished running for the first year, they'll run again next year, is, is the um, chicken house name, of course, which is wonderful, doublecluck.com. So it's www.doublecluck.com, which is an appalling joke in itself. So doublecluck.com is the website, and if you want to submit to the chicken house, you should send to Attention Imogen Cooper. Oh, that's very mean. Well, no, it all goes through there. <laughs> Uh, number two, Palmer Street, P-A-L-M-E-R, as in the artist, Froome, which is a strange English town called F-R-O-M-E, Somerset, P-A-11-1, D for Donald, S for Sugar. It is, everything's on the website, yeah. Um, I've forgotten it now. P-A-11-1, D-S. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and as you say, we we will get round to you eventually. I can't promise fast, but I can pass promise eventually. Is there any compliments you can give to Emma? Tell her you really like horses. <laughs> yeah, good. That's the kind of thinking. You will never pack your way away into this world, young man. I know you might. Anyway, thanks very much. I love coming to Dublin. Have a lovely time. And thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archive podcast. To hear more, please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also visit our website, dublincitypubliclibraries.ie, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.